you listen to Irish Radio Canada's Home Abroad and we heard from Francis Black about the uh, event that's coming up on the 1st of October in Dublin and Frances indicated she's hopeful that they can bring in two and a half, three thousand people to participate in this and the speakers lined up to participate at this stage if I'm not mistaken could be 25 to 30 people from all different political parties, persuasions different aspects of social and just economic um, and cultural life uh, in addition to James Maloney from the Member of Parliament in Canada and I understand there's a member uh, of uh, Congress coming in from the US and I have Andrew Clark with me and Andrew is a young man from Belfast and rather than me try to um, explain who Andrew is the best thing I can say is Andrew who are you? Hello I'm very happy to be here I am Andrew and my general gig is that uh, I grew up in Belfast and I come from a background that people don't typically associate with the movement for United Ireland. My family would have always been very Protestant loyalists, Protestant unionists, as in, in they're in favour of remaining within the United Kingdom. And growing up through the various events and changes in Northern Ireland to the political landscape and to my own life, I started to move away from that unionist and pro-United Kingdom view for the future of Northern Ireland. I entertained different ideas and it wasn't so much like an elastic band. There wasn't really like a, like a tightly wound spring that leapt over to the far other extreme immediately. But I found that exploring other ideas, I came to realise that the current constitutional situation wasn't working. Something new was needed and the best way to do it was to meet people of that persuasion. So I started up a wee project that's known as Tanistry, where my goal is to make politics and history in Ireland and Northern Ireland accessible to people who maybe don't have the time or resources to study it themselves, but specifically through the lens of someone who comes from a background that traditionally isn't associated, for, which is wrongfully not traditionally associated with supporting United Ireland, to someone who now does. Andrew, would it be fair to say that there is a misconception that just because you come from a Protestant tradition you would be unionist and just because you may come from a Catholic tradition that you would be nationalist. Absolutely and it is completely inaccurate at both in contemporary and historically. People often forget that the people who conceived you know, Irish Republicanism, Irish nationalism, the want for a, you know, independent democratic Irish Republic, that idea was brought forward first by Protestants in Belfast. The United Irishmen brought it forward. And to this day, the movement remains to be anti-sectarian at its core. It wants to bring people in and give them a voice and give them a place rather than take anything away from anyone. And that's always been at the core of what I believe very strongly. And it's at the core, I find, of the vast majority of people who support United Ireland. It's about creating something and giving people a voice and never really about taking any anything away from anyone. When would you recall would have been your first personal interaction with somebody from the other side? And I'll put that in context as I remember being in Belfast as a nine or ten year old and I was staying with my aunt on the Skegneal Avenue and I was playing with a kid all week and I came out on Sunday to play and the playgrounds were all changed, chained and I didn't know what was going on so 
you know, um, so now I'll tell us, when did you kind of first make that um, interaction? So, growing up uh, in the community I grew up in, you're, it's peculiar to describe you're aware that there's this divide and that there's these supposed two populations. There's in reality far more than two, but you're taught that there's kind of us and there's them. And I think for a lot of people who grew up in that kind of Protestant loyalist community, particularly in working class ones, some people within the unionist leadership at the time would have you believe that the Catholic population of the North is, you know, about 12 geezers in Donegal. Um, in reality, I started to meet people through school, but it was never really this much friction or I just didn't really understand, maybe just out of my own ignorance at the time, why there was a big difference. Um, it was around 2012, I think, whenever I say as if it's the first time it happened, my own personal first experience with the toxicity of politics in Northern Ireland when there was a whole debacle over flags and debates and that kind of carry on. And I just saw, I was like, this is nonsense. Like, this feels very much like a completely manufactured argument out of a complete insecurity that I think still penetrates that um, hardline unionist identity, which I, it wasn't for me. And I saw many other unionists who, not all of them ceased to be unionists, but there was a lot of people at the time started to move away and be like, this isn't for me. And we've seen it again with countless political developments. The latest one, big one there was Brexit. There's a lot of people now saying like, right, pump the brakes here. Who are we? What do we embody? What do we view? And for me, I think growing up, I was more just confused than anything until I saw more the nasty side of politics. And then I started to meet people from, as I say, across the divide, which in reality means about two streets over most of the time. And when you mentioned Brexit, of course, pre-Brexit, um, there was no border. And as a result of there being no border, the divide and the identity crisis wasn't as to the forefront. Yeah, I think Brexit is, um, for all its flaws in my view, I think maybe the largest one is it has forced people to try and pick a specific box to sit in usually you see a lot of leeway with identity, personal identity, political identity, and whether I agree with people or not, there's usually some wiggle room of where you want to sit. And it felt very much like with the Brexit, you, everyone has been told, all right, pick a side. You're either you know, pulling up the drawbridge, you're in with Westminster, you're in with the United Kingdom, or you're not one of us to get out. And I think a lot of unionists and you know, nationalist Republicans who worked for reconciliation and Worked for people getting along, you're frustrated by that because they're seeing it's, you know, it's almost that we've done this song and dance before. We've seen a lack of foresight, um, stifled debate. We've seen this toxic saber rattling stuff where we're talking about we're battling Brussels or Brussels is battling us. And in reality, day to day, nothing really changes except things get worse and awful people are given platforms and voices through this horrible, greasy rung on a ladder of like, toxic debate and I think Brexit has spawned that and has hardened a lot of people and made a lot more people disillusioned with the, the current situation So Andrew then would it be reasonable to say that the silent majority is actually a very big number? I think the silent majority are an overwhelming majority The uh, thankfully are becoming less and less silent because uh, the one thing about Ireland, I suppose not just Northern Ireland, Ireland in general is that sometimes the Nazis voices are the loudest because people with common sense knew that surely this will never become the mainstream, but they knew that sensible people will get on. And now all of a sudden, these incredible lack of foresight and common sense is making the headlines. And 
a lot of people in that silent majority are realizing right time to find my voice and make it heard and that's where i think a lot of support for uh, either the Ireland's Future Project or United Ireland in general has come. Can you appreciate, understand, and I won't say empathise, but sympathise with what would be a strong unionist position and the fears that a unionist might be feeling at the moment? I think it's it's less empathise. I understand because, as I say, it's my background. I know the methods through which certain fears are manufactured and impressed upon people. I don't really think that anyone has really anything to fear from a United Ireland unless their goal in life is to stifle other people and put themselves on top. I don't think any reasonable person, any decent person has anything to fear from it. I think unionism is, for lack of better words, it is a deeply insecure position and always has been it, the very founding of it comes from an insecurity in the history of the fear of home rule or the fear of this or the fear of that and it's been a century of damage control the, the minimization of damage done to that position of power and as we see the more insecure some unionist leaders get the worse their politics become and that trickles down into unionist communities I think a lot of unionists have wised up to the fact that there's nothing to be afraid of. They still feel British. They don't want the United Ireland, and that's their prerogative and their choice. Uh, but I think some hardline unionists and loyalists, as much as I understand why they feel that way, I wouldn't so much say that I empathise it. And I think the only reason that they feel that way is a lack of conversation. So, taken that the census results have just been released, and in many ways unionists greatest fears are now being documented or enumerated in that uh, the Catholic population represent the largest group um, have you any comments or thoughts on, on where that <laughs> leads oh plenty but the way we do have I suppose we don't have all day so I'll only give a few the main one I think about there being a Catholic majority in Northern Ireland is I'm looking out the window and the sky isn't falling. Everything's still working. The buses are still coming on time. Nothing's on fire. We're okay. Um, the main thing I have to say is people make the mistake of thinking that a demographic shift like that, they think it's irrelevant because they want to avoid this sectarian headcount where one Catholic equals one vote for United Ireland. That might not be the case, but... I think what people forget is that as long as the loudest voice for unionism is this toxic or sectarian or hardline view that takes a harsh stance on anything from the GAA to the Irish language or to have an openly sectarian or bigoted politicians within the party, as long as that's the largest voice, the fact that there's a, a majority population of a community demonized by the loudest unionist voice surely spells dire times ahead for unionism if they don't start to shape up and change rapidly. And I think that's why so many change from, from unionism to the centre, because, well, not everyone might be comfortable making that leap to taking a stance, a solid stance on the constitutional future of the island. I think a lot of people, a lot of people are looking at unionism with more and more discomfort at the kind of disarray over there. And I think the census has shown that change needs to happen because it's going to happen with or without hardline unionism and it's a case of whether they want to catch up or be left behind, I suppose. And when you look back over the last 10 to 15 years particularly, the middle ground, as you just described it in a way, has been minimised. 
the Alliance Party, the SDLP, those that would have been seen as moderates uh, and open to accommodation have been pushed to the side where you had to some degree extremism politically coming to the front. Well, I think the uh, thing about the middle ground in Northern Ireland is that people often apply their own lens to the middle ground. There's a lot of people within unionism who look at, say, Alliance, for example, and say they agree too much with Sinn Féin or SDLP. They're closeted nationalists. And likewise, people I know, people who are nationalists or Republicans, look at them and say they don't really take a solid enough stance. And as a result, they support the status quo, which is unionism. And I think the middle ground itself, I, I think giving it a single label, maybe that's the, where the mistake is, this idea that you're either nationalist or unionist or you're an either. I think the middle ground is the vote to win over. And as I said before, as long as unionism continues to platform and promote this hardline, harsh, saber-rattling politics, I can't really see any situation where the middle ground decides to go back across that bridge to unionism. I think the broadly more progressive politics that you see from nationalist parties or Republican parties is more likely to win people over. Not everyone, but more than unionism will win over, I believe. We've also seen a change in the royal personage in the very recently. So Queen Elizabeth has passed and King Charles is now in reigning. Do you think that that will have any impact on the mindset within the North of Ireland? I do, because as we saw in the immediate aftermath of Elizabeth dying, that the monarchy is, the controversy that surrounds it is underrated. And I think people realised that when Elizabeth passed, that it isn't as uniform as many people thought. A lot of people from nationalism were happy enough to come over and say, look, we'll pay our respects to the head, to the head of state after all. So whether it's protocol or sincere respect, a lot of people made that move. And a lot of people didn't see the need to. And I think with the introduction of Charles, I don't think a lot of people know the man to the same degree. And I don't think that same association with history and heritage and past is there with Charles and this, this new monarch. I think a lot of the appeal for people with Elizabeth was that there was that direct line backwards into you know, through World War II, through the history, through all of this. And now it's going through the motions that there's a new monarch and everyone's now realizing one day there'll be another one. And I think the pageantry and the pop and circumstance has been entertaining for a lot of people. For a lot of people, it's been very important to them. But I worry that, no, not worry, but I think that a lot of people are kind of realizing that there's more to a nation than that throne and that crown. And once this is all done with, these problems are still going to be here. And I don't personally see one monarch or another being the solution to it. Andrew, a question I didn't ask earlier on, but I'm going to put it to you just from a demographics perspective. And that, what age are you? I'd be 26 now. And the reason I ask that again is to bring demographics into it. So from a demographic perspective, you know, you've come through um, what were the years of pre-Brexit when as a Europe, the economy in the North, the economy of Europe, economics were all intertwined. Would you say that the mindset of your colleagues, your contemporaries, would be totally different than mine, for example, given that I'm in my 60s? I would, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think for a lot of young people, you know, we get trains where if we drive across the island, we see the trains and the bridges that we know are helped or were funded up by participation in the EU. 
we like to travel. People love to travel to whether for opportunities abroad or just to meet people. They, that's important to people. This interconnectivity, not to some of the extreme degrees that you see in the headlines, is, is fear of Europe. But people love to travel. People love to be interconnected, and I think that was the case in the past and still is now. I I don't think Brexit has caused any kind of you know social revolution in people's minds about how they feel about Europe. I think a lot of people who weren't going to be affected by it have their own opinions, but the vast majority of young people seem to be confused, confused and annoyed that so many opportunities and opportunities with no real drawback seem to have been dashed for the project of a very small number of people in Westminster, which is, I think, disheartening. So I think, don't wouldn't say there's so much of a divide between young people and people who are older. I think there's maybe a shared sense of confusion about how things were going so good and so much progress had been made and people who lived through the times before it will be dismayed and people like myself who were born after the worst of it but have knew how bad it was and see how good it's getting are also confused and frustrated. A few years ago I was talking to someone at the Irish Embassy in Ottawa and his comment was at that time and we're now talking before really the crash of the Celtic Tiger he kind of said that the Irish people uh, particularly graduates and the like didn't see themselves necessarily as Irish but saw themselves as global citizens that because of their education they could decide that well I'm going to work in Silicon Valley in California or there's an, um, at Silicon Valley North at the time was in Ottawa or Hong Kong or wherever so as such this traditional identity of I'm Irish he, he said that the Irish weren't like that anymore because of the change. Would you say a similar type of mentality may have existed uh, within the North? Uh, in a sense, yeah. I think um, you know there's a great historical precedent for this global Irish population who don't necessarily associate themselves with home. Home is a amorphous but deeply loved concept. is close to all Irish people who travel abroad, but... I think in the north, there are a lot of Irish people who go abroad to better opportunities, which is unsurprising considering the history of the north and the the lack of opportunities here recently particularly. But um, I do think, and maybe it's personal experience, there's a deeper and closer attachment to the north for a lot of people that will want to see it get better. Because while I think with the Republic of Ireland, which has conversations about its own past that need to be had and will be had as part of the project for United Ireland, but... In the North, I personally have been tempted many times to look overseas for a better opportunity, but there is a part of me that wants to, this is my home, you know, I'm an Irish person and this is the part of Ireland that I'll always call home. Belfast will always be very dear to me and it would sting me, I think, to leave it behind permanently, even if I was abroad, I'll I'll never say I'm from anywhere but Belfast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Going back to the um, project, Ireland's Future, you've been at some of the other information gathering and information sharing events has I take it that it has if anything reassured you that you're doing that this is something that's a worthwhile project to be involved in I, I think um, I've been in a, I've took part in a few talks I was at the one in Waterford and I've been at a few meetings and it was reassuring to see I don't know if reassuring is the word because it's not that I needed reassuring it was almost um, inspiring I think to see so much passion and so many passionate and talented people 
putting their mind specifically to a United Ireland, not a million other things. And then if they get to it, a United Ireland, but no, they sit down, plan and have answers for when people ask, how will this work and how will this work? And one thing I see is that there are people, both who I think will be at the event involved in somehow and will be broad, more broadly involved in the campaign for United Ireland, who I'll never see IDI with and a multitude of issues. And these are people who I'll disagree with on all sorts, strongly or weakly. But the key point is that we've hit a point now where that's not a deterrent to discussing a United Ireland itself. And everyone scrambles for a seat at the table. And whether you agree with people on certain issues or not, the conversation happening, that's the main thing that inspires me. And that's my main takeaway from Alan's Future is that I'm glad the conversation is happening. Um, it's just good to see so many very talented people and brilliant minds put to it. Their project that means so much. And Andrews, I suppose it would be safe to say that we all recognise that this requires a seismic shift on both sides of the border. Definitely. I think one thing people often mis- make a critical mistake of is that, for example, I, as someone in the North, I'm an Irish Republican, I want the United Ireland. People mistake that or mistranslate that into an undying loyalty for the Republic of Ireland or whatever government is in place in the Republic of Ireland. In my personal view, and I think in the view of all sorts of people, there's a lot of different shapes the United Ireland can take. But I think the view of a lot of people in the North and a lot of people in the rest of Ireland is that this has not really worked the best way. And I think there is something so much better we can build and should build. And it's almost, I think, the duty of people who want a better future to discuss it and try to build it. Um, so I've my own opinions of what a United Ireland be, as do other people. And putting them all together and producing something new and all-encompassing and equal for everyone is a very unique opportunity in Europe and in the world, I think, that we have here and I think it'd be a shame to squander it. Andrew, I want to thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. The one message I'm hearing is, and I think you'll agree with me, the status quo is not good enough. And change, it doesn't matter where you are or what it is, the status quo is not good enough. And uh, I'm hopeful that I know that there are buses going to be bringing people from Belfast and the other parts of North down to Dublin for the 1st of October. Hopefully there's a great turnout. I look forward to seeing the outcome and some of the papers. I know Francis uh, Black mentioned that there are a lot of documents that have been done and studies have been done that will be released and she's hopeful they'll be ready for the 1st of October. Um, Wishing you every success and thanking you for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.